0: Welcome, you're listening to Intentional Conversations from Mika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. It does me great pleasure to shift our attention to providing you with a formal introduction of today's guest co-host, Dr. Jen Fry. And I know it's going to be a wonderful conversation. And so I look forward to jumping right in. But before I do so, I always like to make sure that I can provide information for this audience regarding our guest co-host credentials, how they show up to this space, um, their accolades, because there's a lot of good things that are happening that I want you to know about. So let me do that now. And then I'll welcome Jen Fry to come and to greet this audience in her own way. Dr. Jen Fry, her pronouns are she, her. She runs Jen Fry Talks LLC, a social justice education firm that uses conversations to educate and empower those within organizations through an anti-racist lens. Jen teaches and speaks on issues of race, inclusion, intersectionality, diversity, and equity. She's an expert facilitator and works with small and large groups, departments, teams, K-12 schools, affinity groups, identity Mm -hmm. groups, and so much more. She uses an anti-racist lens to advise on best practices to help her clients create equitable searches, hiring, onboarding practices, retaining and supporting students, staff, and coaches, as well as community building. Jen is also a veteran coach with over 15 years of experience at the collegiate level. Jen earned her PhD in Geography from Michigan State University. Go green, her words, not mine, but yes, for today, go green, Jen. And um, I can't wait for us to learn more about um, her her work in this space of geography. She has a really important niche and and angle that I I think is going to um, create for a really interesting conversation. So podcast community, in your own way, please take to the chat and welcome our guest co-host, Dr. Jen Fry, in your own way. Let her know that we've been expecting her that we're excited to be in conversation with her. I'm going to add her as the spotlight. Jen, thanks for being here. I think I prepared you in saying that after we read your bio, we certainly are going to want to give you a chance to share a little bit more with us about yourself. And here's where we're looking for, what do we not know about you that we could not know just from reading your bio? What are some of those other intersecting identities or interesting facts about Jen that helps to shape how in which you show up to this work?
1: Ah, oh, friends, I appreciate you here. I see some people in the chat saying Friday. I actually have Friday shirts and I'm embarrassed that I forgot. It literally is a, a, a thing of fries that says Friday. So I am so appalled at forgetting I, my one chance to show up with my shirt and I forgot. I am mad at myself now. I'm like, so oh, funny. I should have had it. Um, friends, I am excited to be here with you. Let me just kind of give a brief um, descriptor of wh- who I am. So I'm a black female. I have an Afro that has some nice blonde streaks in it. I'm wearing a green shirt um, with a razzle dazzle colored fist behind me. Um, I have a, I'd say like a nice dusty blue wall with some really cool African art behind me um, and uh, some foliage. And I say the foliage because one of my best friends is an interior designer. And so she decorated my back. So it's, it's, I did not do this. Do not be in the chat asking me if I did this. I did none of this. She did it all. And she says, I always should have a tree in the corner to soften corners. That is the rule you want. So I have this foliage back here that I move out of the window whenever I'm not doing any type of podcasts or anything. So so just know that trees soften corners. Do you have any question about that? Um, (laughs) To give you just a little bit, I guess a brief insight of who I am is I'm a person who was raised in Arizona. I was formerly undocumented. So I came from Canada. Um, I was a person that had really easy citizenship. And so that's kind of part of my story literally back in the 80s. The one good thing that Ronald Reagan did is he had this amnesty law and he said, if you have lived in the country for this long and have this, this, and this, you get an immediate pass to citizenship, immediate. So my pass to citizenship probably took like six months. Um, And it was maybe like, it was like three or $400. And I got my green card. And the funny part about it is that the only reason I became a citizen Uh, Was because it was cheaper to become a citizen than keep a green card, and I did that like in 2007, 2008, and I was like, you know what, I might as well just become a citizen. And you have to go and take the test and all that. And so I kept missing the test, and it came to be a point where they're like, if you don't take this test, you will not be able to become a citizen. So I was like, fine, I'll do it. And so that was literally my path to becoming a U.S. citizen was something that easy and and something I I didn't pay attention to. I really hold that opportunity really near and dear to my heart because it it was so easy for me and I understand that other people don't get to have that opportunity. Um, I grew up, I guess, at five minutes from the Mexican border in Arizona. I was a three-sport athlete. I was someone that uh, my mom didn't, she didn't graduate high school. She worked at the library for 14, 15 years. So I'm a huge bookworm. Um, And I never thought of like college as being, oh, Lynn, you know it, go white. Yes, Lynn, I appreciate you, Sam. You already know, go green, go white. Um, so I, I never really thought about college as an opportunity. I didn't even know it existed in a way to educate. And the reason I was able to go to college was that uh, my club volleyball coach, because I played three sports in, in high school, she was like, hey, do you want to come play at the junior college I coach at? And I was like, okay, sure. I really didn't have an understanding of what that meant graduated and then went and moved to a four-year school in Alabama and that's where I kind of found my love of coaching and -hmm. from that point people were like well you can go and get a master's and coach I didn't even know what a master's was like I had no idea so I'm at 23 and I have a master's don't even know what that means (laughs) and I coached for about 15 years and I decided at um I coached all over the the U.S. I coached in the if you know sports I coached in the Pac-12 at uh, Washington State I coached in the Big Ten at Illinois when we played for a national championship in 2011. Right there is our runner-up trophy, if you can see right in the little corner right there. Go GoPoom, Jeff, right there is my little trophy, which I'm still bitter we lost to UCLA. So if you are from on this call and you have a UCLA degree, just know I don't like you. And I'm very open about my disgust because you beat me 11 years ago and I I still am bitter. Um, And so I coached all over the place, ended at Elon, And when I was at Elon, that's where I realized that race and sport wasn't talked about the way I wanted it to. And so I decided to leave coaching. Um, I, you know, I, I before thought I would be a coach for the the 70, 80 years, that would be my whole life. And then it wasn't because I found kind of a new method to educate people. And so I left, didn't know what I was going to do, went and worked at Duke for a few years. And that's where I decided about that time is when Colin Kaepernick kneeled and, all of my coaching friends were like, what do we do? How do we handle this? I might get fired. Um, My AD is telling me to kick people off the team if they kneel, all of these things. And so I became kind of the go-to person for it because there was no one in the sports space that was helping people navigate this. I mean, back then in 16, it was new, right? And so I decided to leave and become a full-time owner of my company as well as get my PhD. And so by training, I'm a sports geographer, if you pay attention to sports and what what's going on with Brittany Griner right now, who is in, yes. in Russia, I look at what does it look like to be a Black athlete in Europe? What does it mean to, have, to be in this space where you're celebrated, but also at the same time you're thought to be a sex worker, you're attacked, right? You're spit on. So all these multiple things are happening to people at the same time. And so kind of that really interacts with my company because I really center what does it mean to be someone that's marginalized? and Mm -hmm. to have to navigate the world.
0: No, I love that. And before we actually um, went live today, you helped educate me on what um, sport geography, geographer is exactly. Mm -hmm. So I so appreciate you bringing that to the conversation. And I understand that it's pretty rare. Um, There's only maybe a handful, if that, um, of individuals that have that um, specificity in terms of their discipline. And um and so I, I heard you describe it as you really do look at place and space and the impact for um black athletes, you know, or minority mm-hmm. athletes. And so. Um, I I think that's really unique, and I wanted just to amplify that for this community. So you've told us about your background and how it led you to your career in social justice education, focusing on sports. I want to just get your thoughts now about the role that coaching staffs um, should play in really helping to bring a lens of DEI. Um, into the mindsets of of college athletes? Is that important? And if it is, why it's important? And how can the coaching staff do that in an effective
1: way? That's a good question, Doc. And I think the biggest thing is, is that if you're a coach of K through 12, if you're coaching Kiwi, if you're coaching 10, 11, 12-year-olds, if you're coaching college athletes, if you're coaching professional athletes, helping people be culturally competent is about helping create great humans. Like, literally, when you're a coach, part of it is to help create great humans. Part of it is helping people bump their nose and learn about themselves, learn about other people, learn how to interact, learn how to be in a team. And so that doing DEI work is literally a part of helping people develop themselves. Mm. And I think it's left out because coaches are like, well, this is only my job is the X and O's and the recruiting. But this is also your job is to help create great humans because being on a team, there's nothing like it in sports literally it does not matter if you hate that person you have to work with them for a common goal it could be your biggest nemesis you better it better not show on that court i know that you better be the best of friends when it comes to that court when you step off y'all can go in sword fight i don't care but you have to learn how to work together with people for a common goal because if you don't do your part the whole team will will be destroyed yeah. And so learning how to be culturally competent is about helping people learn about themselves to be great humans and great um, people that add to communities. And a part of it that's tough, though, for coaches is that means that they have to turn the lens on themselves. Yeah. Because, you know, if I'm helping you become great, I have to learn what's holding me back from being great. I have to learn about how am I handling my biases? How am I handling different ethnicities, races, language, accents? Like, how am I managing that? Because the one thing that we always hear is like, "Well, I treat all my athletes the same," and I'm like, "Baby, you even treat your own kids the same? What you mean? Mm-hmm. I know favorite kid. If you have more than one kid, you have a favorite kid. Period. <laughs> <Seriously. laughs> right? I, I'm six of six kids. Jen Fry is the favorite kid of Carol. <laughs> if I called my son, hey, Mauricio, you have favorite. If I called my sister and be like, "Who's the favorite of mom?" She'd be absolutely you. Like favorite, favorite kids. So when people try and tell me I treat my athletes the same, but you don't even treat the kids that are yours the same, there's a disconnect. Because what people don't want to realize is it's not about treating people the same, it's about treating them fairly. Yeah. And fairly and di- across the board is different. If I have an athlete that is a foster athlete, af- foster kid, I'm going to treat that athlete differently than someone that comes from a two-parent household. Because mm-hmm. there's going to be different needs that they need. And so I think the thing is that's really tough and why, at, why coaches stay away from doing DEI work is because they have to turn the lens on themselves. And they have yeah. to say, how was I raised? What language did my, my parents use around, around me? What things did they subconsciously do that created the form of my biases? Maybe it was seeing someone in a wheelchair and my parents were like, oh my gosh, we don't talk to them. Something has to be wrong with them. So now you creating kids that if they see someone in a wheelchair that's bad, that's negative. Mm-hmm. Or if they're now in a wheelchair, it's bad. And so coaches have to turn that lens and say, what do I need to to work on in myself that because they're role models that will then help their athletes. And I think learning about this stuff is so critical because we're trying to create great humans.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious, Jen, uh, when you think about coaches and how their livelihood is to win, right? Mm Because it's all about the competition. You want to win. now, I can see how there could be some internal turmoil that maybe they experience where they're thinking about, mm-hmm. I want to always go to my trusted best, however best is defined for them. Mm-hmm. And, and and thinking about that, sometimes I could imagine that it could work against the mindset of really trying to also provide opportunities for others. And we know that sports is a, a really big unifier, right? So mm-hmm. how do you normally guide and provide counsel to coaches when you are obviously very much set on this, this space of fairness, the space of, of justice, knowing that sometimes um, the, the competitive nature of a coach um, can, if you aren't careful, cloud judgment around how inclusive are we really being, how how acceptance are, are we
1: really accepting are we really being to, to all of our athletes? Well, I mean, I I think that's a great question. And the reality of the situation is that different causes conflict. Like, if if we are two different people, and we want to go get something to eat, it's going to cause some conflict. Where are we going to eat? Does it have food places? My partner loves seafood. I don't eat seafood. So that difference right there changes the dynamic of where we're going to eat at. And the issue is, is that people can't handle conflict. People Mm -hmm. do not look at their relationship to conflict. They don't ask themselves, how do I handle when someone goes against what I think? How do I handle when I'm upset? And so because they don't like conflict, they then try and lessen right, how conflict is gonna occur. And so that means maybe I stay pretty homogeneous.
2: Mm -hmm. That might
1: mean the aspect of, I might have one black or brown person because then I can handle them because really what I'm gonna do is try and force them to assimilate. But if I get more, now that's going to cause more conflict and I'm not prepared to handle it. And that's the reality of the situation is that we as coaches, and I put myself in that bucket because the reason that I do this work is to help young gen, right? Like, what did you need back when you were a 27-year-old head coach? And this type of stuff is saying conflict is fine. And it actually is going to build you to have a better team. But you have to understand your relationship to it and how you manage it. And people don't even think about that. They either think I'm in conflict or I'm not. They think I either avoid conflict or I'm like super aggressive versus, yeah. right? Like I will I will die on the hill that assertive black women are always fired for being assertive. I will die on that hill. Because if you grow up and you're a conflict avoidant person, anything black women do feels like aggression. Yeah. Any type of advocating for ourselves feels like aggression because you as maybe a white person has been taught to never advocate for yourself, that you're supposed to be seen, but not heard. And so mm-hmm. you have this black woman who is loud and advocating for yourself and that causes right tension. Right. You have a coach who now has these black athletes who advocate for themselves. And they're, they're not used to that because coaching is about a power structure. Mm-hmm. I have the power, your scholarship, your playing time. You have to listen to me, which is why we see these coaches who are so aggressive to athletes. to go back to your point because we have to win. So yeah. I know that my contract, my house, paying for my my kids, schooling, or my wife's car, that's all in this contract. Mm-hmm. And so when the game is on the line, I haven't been taught to manage my emotions. I haven't been taught those type of things. So because of that, and I'm thinking in the back of my head, if we lose this game, we're not going to go to playoffs. I'm not going to get a bonus. I might get fired. I'm going to be overtly more aggressive because we need to win. And yeah. I'm not going to have fairness or anything in mind. All I'm going to think of is I need to win. So I'm going to grab your jersey. I'm going to smack you in the head, whatever it is. And it's going to be, well, because I love you. And I always say, then we're attaching love to aggression to violence. Mm. As a coach, if I am grabbing and shaking you? If I feel like I can do this stuff out of love, what am I then teaching you that you can do with your partner or your friends or your family?
2: Yeah. And so we
1: as coaches don't think about those types of things because we feel like we have to win. You know, the Big Ten just signed a billion dollar um, sports deal with Fox or with I think Fox um, Sports, Peacock and NBC. A billion dollars. The money is on the line. The contracts are on the line. So because of that, I have not been told or taught how to manage my emotions. So I'm going to do what I've always been, what I've seen and done. It's be aggressive. Uh, In men's volleyball at Sacred Heart the men's coach smacked a player in the face during a timeout. Literally players there smacked him in the face. We are not helping our coaches learn how to navigate conflict or aggression. And so all they know is what they've been taught, which is if we are in a spot that might have me get fired in the future, I am going to be aggressive because that's the only way I know how to manage my emotions. And so that aspect of winning, like you asked makes me stop wanting to recruit diversity It makes me not want to have conflict because conflict might mean that I get fired if I have too much conflict that I'm not able to manage. It might mean that we're not winning. It might mean all of these things and I have not been trained to manage myself and my staff has not been trained to manage them. And we as a staff together have not been trained to manage those things. So because of all of that, when this hits the fan and we're losing, I'm going zero to a thousand because that's all that I know. And then I'm role modeling that to my athlete, that this is how you handle being in pressure, stress, anxious, uncomfortable is pure aggression. Oh, Jen, this is so good. And I don't know
0: about the audience that's listening to this
1: conversation,
0: but I have never reflected to this level on the, the connection points that you're making to the aggressive nature um, That's that's, you know, correlates with this competitive mindset of having to win, and the impact that that could have on the athletes. And I am so glad now that I'm hearing you articulate really the reality of it, that there is a, a, there are individuals like yourself that are giving attention to this, because you're so right. I think that it's, it's most parents desire to put their kids in some type of athletic endeavor, you know, Mm -hmm. to build the confidence. And so that's kind of what we drive towards. But Particularly for um, the, the black and brown parents, are we considering the implications of that, and are we being thoughtful to make sure that what we are allowing our kids to align with from an athletic experience perspective is not creating harm? And I don't, I don't want to at all kind of create this picture of you know, you know, doing p ball and all those other things is bad. But you are bringing
1: something to the fore. So, doc, I, do I actually. Can I stop you real quick? Yes. And you mentioned T-ball. We just had a, a football coach at a U-9 game get murdered by a fan who was upset with a call. In Dallas, Texas, at a 9 a nine and under Kiwi football game, a parent was upset with the officials. So the, the coach was officiating. And he got upset. And they got in an argument and he pulled a gun and killed this dad of three Mm -hmm. at an under nine game. So when you say as black and brown parents, are we thinking about the harm that we're putting them in? In some aspects, no, because we ourselves have not been taught how to regulate our emotions. Mm -hmm. These parents right now are out of control. They are so out of control with how they treat officials, how they treat coaches. I come from clubs. And these parents are cussing people out. They're cornering these coaches and treating them so bad because they feel like their kids deserve X, Y, and Z. And because we have not been taught to regulate our emotions, okay. we feel that we can treat people any way we want. And so that's what we're teaching our kids. So we don't know any better than when we have them go to a coach. Because for us, the coach's aggression and anxious And anxiety that's normal, right? And we see parents who are like, well, I was taught by a coach like that. I don't see the problem. We got to teach our our men to be strong and and masculine. And the way to do that, you got to get roughed up. So we're perpetuating this because we feel the best way to make, especially a male athlete, is through pure aggression, pure anger, pure violence. We don't know anything else of saying like, no, we need to teach them through love and respect and teach them how to manage their emotions and and really reflect on who they are and so we don't do a good job of doing that ourselves so we don't know how to see different in these coaches
0: right so what do we do about that what have you found to be some really good coaching practices to help coaches to lean into this more to at least be aware of it and just
1: help us to understand what that looks like how do you how do you resolve for this I think the biggest thing is that athletic directors first have to start acknowledging what type of of emotion is acceptable to them. And many times it's aggression by a male coach, right? The male coach who's aggressive and screams and yells and cusses people out, that's going to be something that they're okay with. The female coach who maybe does the same or is emotional, they're not going to be okay with that. So I think it starts at the top of saying like, what type of emotion do I feel is acceptable from these coaches? Yeah, and to really, because what we have to do is as a, as a, as coaches and administrators, is really turn the mirror back on us to be able to say, how like how do I react in in relationships, friends, family, work relationships, like how do I really react? How do I think about conflict? And people really do not think about that in depth. My partner, he always tells me I'm an overthinker. I over I think so in depth about everything. And I think one of the things is we don't think about where our relationship to conflict began. Was it that you saw your parents screaming at each other and the only way that you could get a word in was you had to scream back? Was yeah. it that you are conflict avoidant because you knew that if you said something, you get punched in the mouth, right? Did you have to manipulate? Because that's the only way you could get your, you, could, you didn't know how to advocate for yourself, so you had to manipulate. And that's the only way you can get your needs met. And so the way that we do that is we start getting these coaches to really reflect on why they do what they do and where they learn that. Mm -hmm. Because if we start realizing, well, I learned how to do this in coaching from other coaches, from my dad, from this, this, and this, maybe we can start having some change happen. But if you just say, well, you're aggressive to a coach or you shouldn't do this. And they have learned to do this for 20, 30 years and never have thought of any other different way. Well, we're not gonna help them out. Yeah, and 30%. so it really is, yeah, right? So we really yeah. have to start peeling back the layer. And then this is on any DEI topic. Where did you learn what you know? Yeah. Because if we start getting people to pull back all the layers of where did you learn what you know, then we maybe can start seeing change and saying, well, you learned about disability through your parents talking really badly about disabled people. Mm-hmm. You learned about race by your parents always just calling people welfare mom and locking the door anytime they're in a black neighborhood. And so you, when you start peeling back, where did you learn what you know, then we're gonna start seeing more change, especially when it comes to aggression and anger in the athletic space. Yeah, so I'm going to, I'm gonna
0: take kind of an approach just to get your reactions to it. What about those who say, coaches that do this, they are effective. Their, their role is not to, um, help avoid any type of harm for their athletes their role is to win games win championships bring in money and um so you're placing too much responsibility on the coach and staff what do you say to that because i would imagine maybe that's some of the sentiments of those who are in those those
1: positions who are not thinking along those lines what do you say to that so i say that when you tell someone's mom that you're taking care of their kid this is a part of it when you sit in someone's house and saying your son or daughter or child is coming 2,000 miles away, we are going to take care of them. This is a part of the taking care. The taking care doesn't only mean that they win games. The taking care is making sure that we are creating great humans, that when they leave my program in four years, that they've learned a lot of good skills that, that help them be a great human. And understanding how they handle conflict is a part of that. Because if I'm only thinking of the sport and I'm doing whatever it takes to win, we're gonna see athletes that are coming out that are going to jail, they're in abusive relationships. We're seeing female identified athletes who don't know how to advocate for themselves. So yeah. because they haven't been taught that, they put themselves in a potentially harmful situations because yeah. they don't have coaches who are like, no, we're gonna make sure to help you learn how to advocate for yourself in all aspects. And so that's a part, that's a part of the role as a coach, is that when I'm telling I'm sitting there telling a mom we're taking care of your kid, a part of it's helping them learn and grow. That is a part of it. And if you as a coach are not really holding on to that, then you, you shouldn't be coaching because the X's and O's, that, yeah, you might win, yeah, you might have a trophy, but if I'm not helping you build the skill set to be a great parent, a great friend, a great partner, a great teammate, a great employee, a great supervisor, then I am not doing my job
0: yeah no i love that i applaud that i champion that that those sentiments and i think that also there's a responsibility on those who the coaching staff are reporting into to make sure as they are you know communicating the expectations that that is well-rounded it's not just about the championship and you know building a Mm -hmm. solid you know athletic team that can yield results but it's also about the whole person so I, i love that you brought that to the conversation so I wanna shift a little bit. And momentarily, we are going to open up to the audience for you to present your questions and, and contributions to the conversation. So be thinking of those, you can do so by simply raising your hand and I'll spotlight you. Um, or you can also send your questions um, and place them into the
1: chat and we'll make sure it gets brought to our dialogue. So Jen, Can you I, um, yeah. uh, yes, you're right about that. Can I just make a point on what Andrea says about trauma? Yes, Because it kind absolutely. of goes back to the conflict. Andrea, a hundred percent. And what I talk about is people need to understand how trauma affects how they handle conflict. So let's do this,
0: Jen. I want to read her statement because for the podcast audience that's going to also be in in the audio, I want them to have um, knowledge of what we're talking about. So one of our podcast guests shared into the chat, I think we also overlook trauma that folks have endured. Layered trauma that is untreated and exacerbates we are all coming out of a global pandemic where we were all traumatized so true if your lived experience includes other forms of trauma what we live through in quarantine is only compounded so that's what you're addressing now jen go for it
1: yeah and 100 percent i talk about your relationship to trauma is your relationship to conflict because how we so there's a really good trauma um informed certificate through arizona trauma institute it's phenomenal it's like 70 bucks it's great. And what they say is that there's no emotion isn't bad or good, because many times we say like, oh, you you are mad. So that's a bad emotion. You're happy. That's good. And there is no bad or good emotion. Emotion is what it is. And it was it's there to protect you. So if you are a very aggressive person, that emotion, that method was there to protect you in the situation. And now it's about how do we reframe that so that we can start doing it a different way. But. Everyone coming out of COVID is traumatized like hell. And if you're not, you're lying to yourself. You, there's no way you could have been quarantined and maybe by yourself and not having any physical touch and scared of anyone that you're not coming out and unscathed. It's impossible. And so how you handle all that is so traumatic. And it people is. need to understand that your trauma also um, affects how you manage conflict. And it might be a traumatic response in how you handle conflict. If I know that anytime I had to be really aggressive and cuss people out to protect myself, that's a traumatic response that I now use on others. So 100% trauma absolutely informs conflict. Yeah. what well, it's, you know, the saying
0: hurt people, hurt people. It doesn't give yep. them an excuse for hurting people, but it does give context, context as yep. to they're probably operating from a place of their own trauma and they're triggered mm-hmm. by whatever they're experiencing in the moment. And it comes out as now I'm inflicting mm-hmm. this, hurting, this pain on someone else. And so, yeah, absolutely. So we did place into the chat, Mauricio, you're so awesome. He placed into the chat, Arizona um, Arizona Trauma Institute, certified clinical Thank trauma you. specialist. And so thanks, Mauricio. Okay, so I want to talk about this TED Talk. It discusses mm-hmm. the lack of diversity within um, coaching staff. So what impact mm-hmm. does that have on athletes?
1: Representation matters. Representation matters, representation matters. And when you don't see yourself, yeah. you don't think you could do that. I was so lucky all of my head coaches for volleyball were women. That is unheard of, absolutely mm-hmm. unheard of. And my high school coach was a black woman mm-hmm. and her being a coach for me, being able to see myself really affects me. And it also is that you need someone who's had some of those same experiences to talk to about things. Because, so in my dissertation, I interviewed all former or current professional black female volleyball players. And one of them, you know, her parent, her, um, she was in Italy. And her, her son was really funny and was like, well, do you know if the person talking about me is black? And she's like, well, I hope so. She's like, cause I didn't do my hair. And he's like, well, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, she better be. And it was this idea of I can take off, right? I, I can can take off, you know, this um, protective measure and be myself in this interview. It's not gonna be played to anyone. I don't have to worry about my hair being done. I can just be myself. I can be my black self. And people don't understand what that means to be able to be self without having to put protective layers on to make yourself easier to deal with in some ways because people don't know how to manage that and so it's so important when these athletes whoever they are able to see themselves and and be able to talk about experiences others wouldn't not only be able to understand but you would have to you have to give so much background information to be able to talk about an experience it you don't want to talk about it anymore Mm -hmm. if i have to explain And, you know, the past and why this is hurtful and all this to be able to explain this current experience. I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. And so I think it's so important that we see more representation and not just coaches, but all aspects of athletics, because we have so like football players, I think represent like 60% black football players are like 60% of football players in division one, like 53% of um, black males in basketball. And then we see in coaching, I think coaches is like 90% white. Yeah. Well, how do we have that disconnect? What are we not teaching our black athletes about coming and coaching that we're teaching our white athletes? Yeah,
0: no, very very well stated. Um, so one more question, then again, I'm gonna to turn to the audience. So um, we talked a little bit ahead of uh, prepping for today. And I know that part of your your belief system is that athletics is a really solid and perfect place to practice radical social justice education. Mm-hmm. So lean into that a little bit and tell us why that is something that you feel strongly about.
1: Because it's a place where you're with people for two, three, four years. You're with people that, and I hate saying family because many times when people use the word family, it's like weaponized, yeah, right? Well, yeah. we're part of the family, so you should do this. You don't want to leave your family, right? But like you're part of this community for years where you get to know people in ways that you don't in a workspace. Meaning, as an athlete, you're with people for 15, 20 hours a day. You're rooming with them. Maybe on the road, you're rooming with them as a roommate. You're going home with them for holidays. You're getting to know their parents, their sisters, their brothers, their cousins. You're getting to know people in such different ways while playing for a common goal. And so it's a great place to help build you know, mm-hmm. this type of um, skill set into people because you're around people who are all doing the same thing at the same point. Mm-hmm. And so it's a perfect place to try these things out and help folks develop the skills because you're not gonna have this type of community in anything else, not in work, right? People are like, I work eight to five and I'm out of here. Yeah, I'm here from this to this, I'm out of here. And that's not the aspect in, in sports. In sports, you are with these people in developing such in-depth relationships it's so, so different. It's a great place to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. No, well stated. Okay, so Lynn Roy, I see that your hand is raised, so I'm going to add you to our spotlight. Um, please feel free to present your question.
2: Great. I'm, I'm enjoying this conversation, not just because you're a fellow Spartan. Hey. The, one, one the energy, and then also um, the the focus, because you're over a variety of, of, of issues that we need to get tackled. But coming from a higher education background myself and having worked a lot with Division I programs and speaking with football programs, hockey programs, et cetera, um, to try to do the preventative things, um, I just was struck by your energy and, and how you spoke and emphasized navigation, which is true because you have the champs program, right? You know, you have the counseling centers, you have the academic, and if, academic advisors, psychologists, etc., with the Division One programs. Division II has some as well. But I'm, I was so curious about your story as it relates to how did you navigate the, the BA, the MA, I think you have two masters, and then the doctorate program that, that you're um, either done with or, or working on um, and, and wrapping up, it sounds like. But I'm just curious about that. And I have a follow-up question, um, depending on the direction you go, because I think that's important how you were able to successfully navigate it to now be that advocate, that professional to really bring about change, which is very much needed as you've already made a a great point.
1: Yeah. um, Lenroy, I'm glad that you're a fellow Spartan. And so I would say in my mom, like raised like a single mom, I was a person, I'm a figure it out person. Like I, if you tell me something, I'm going to figure it out. And that's how I was in my bachelor's. We didn't have like academic support. You just, Figured it out. So I, I figured it out I'm always one to like learn to navigate, and um, I mean my my first master's I was like 23. I don't even know if I have that degree anywhere. Years ago, right? I'm 42 now. Um, but my my second master's was really about one thing that people are afraid to do is pivot. They're afraid to pivot really quickly. They want to have all the information. And I was talking to a friend, and she said that they went to some company and the CEO said, we make decisions on 60% of the information. Like we can't wait for hundred percent. You might not ever get hundred percent. Right. We make decisions with 60% of the information. And for me, I was at my second master's was it, I started in um, conflict studies, and I didn't like it. And I found a class in this other degree program. I was like, I wanna do that. So in the span of 24 hours I literally pivoted to a whole new degree program. And so the one thing I tell people if you're gonna make a decision, you gotta make it quick. And know that whatever decision you made, you made it on the information you had at that point. And so many times we might kick ourselves and be like, oh, I wish I did this. You made the best decision with the best information you had at that point. And so for me, I pivoted to go to this other master's program that really changed my life. And from that, the the gen of my bachelor's, master's, master's, and then PhD are very different. Because when I, I finished my PhD in May of 22 of this year. And the gen of the PhD program was someone that fiercely was able to advocate for yourself and for other people. We had a professor that was trying to do some really shady stuff with the class. And we were like, we're not having that. Like and my cohort members, other professional age women, we we're like, uh-uh, we're not, we're not doing that. Like you got the wrong people. And so we're able to fiercely advocate because many times in PhD programs, PhD students are making $18, $20,000 a year. That's, they can't mess that up. I own my own company. So I'm like, I, what y'all gonna do to me? Like, I, I don't really care, but I'm not gonna allow people to treat me like X, Y, and Z. And so for me, the navigation at my PhD was to be able to fiercely advocate in ways other people might not be able to, but also if they see someone doing this, they're so like, okay, she's doing it, I can also advocate for myself as well.
2: Okay, so I do have to, have to do a follow-up question, because I wonder which what direction you would go in. And what I wanna pull out now is, who's your mentors, how important mentorship is. Because most masters, definitely doctoral, you have mentors that are in the space that you're in, whether it's in the program, outside the program, and then even at the the bachelor's level and the the master's levels too. And just wanted to to get you to to share a little bit about that.
1: The mentoring part is difficult because my degree, like I'm the only sport geographer in the world. (laughs) So people in this program, what I did was have a really good community around me of people who were like, Hey, you're going to finish this program. Like you have no other options, you know, in my, um, in my acknowledgements, I literally say I finished this program out of spite because of two people like out of pure spite, these two people were not going to finish. One was definitely not going to finish before me. And one person I did not want to hear his mouth for the rest of my life saying I was all but dissertation. So I finished it out of pure spite and pettiness. But I had a good community around me who if I had a question or a need, they would uplift me and say, hey, here's who you talk to, here's how you do this. And so I had really, really good community members. I had my chair of my, my, my doctorate was phenomenal and anything I needed, he was like, we are going to figure it out, anything I needed. And I can't say too much. I see a lot of people who wanna pick chairs that are very popular in the profession. And I always say, pick a chair that will love you, that will protect you, that will be there for you. Because doing a PhD is really, really difficult. And if you don't have a chair that is there to be like, hey, come to the house for dinner. We're going to figure out, you need a grant. We're going to figure out that money. What do we need to do to help you? Like my chair, Kyle, he, I can't thank him enough because of how much love and protection he gave me. Anytime I went back to Michigan, his wife, they're like, you got, you have to come over for a meal. Like no matter what, you're coming over for a meal. And that's what your your PhD students need is someone like that, not someone who is a big name, because many times if they're a big name, they have a lot going on. You need people who are gonna really love and cherish you. At that will be your chair or your committee.
2: Yes, great. Thanks. Spoken like a true Spartan and congratulations. <laughs> yes. As well.
0: Thanks, Lynn Roy. We appreciate your questions. You. Okay. So while maybe a few others are thinking about questions or contributions you'd like to make, I want to shift and ask you about, and you've mentioned this um, before, but I want to go back to it. What does the Brittany Griner case and verdict sentencing say about the treatment of Black women, in your
1: opinion? Well, I I first think it shows how vulnerable you are when you travel internationally. Like, I, I think that what we tend to see with a lot of people who are like, I, you know, I hate the U.S. I'm going overseas. You don't know how vulnerable you are. Britney Griner was in jail for like a month before we knew, and she was a professional athlete over there right. making millions of dollars. What does that mean for us who go over there? We literally could disappear and no one would know. No one would know for however long. I mean, it might be, you know, I you know my partner, Daniel, he's always like, Call me when you touch down. Call you know. So I feel like if I went a day, it would start to raise some red flags. But some folks, it might be a month because they don't usually talk to people that you can literally disappear. And so I think to me, it brings up the vulnerability that we have—that you can literally disappear and it would be really difficult to find you. Mm -hmm. I think the next thing, the the problem I think that the next thing is is people are like, "Well, Brittany Griner had this thing of weed, and she should know better." I'm like she's been going to Russia for 10 years. This is not the first time, right? There's a political aspect around it that made it different, but this, this isn't a, the first time it's happened. And so I, I think it, it shows that when when black and brown people push up against what the U.S. is doing, how people will say, well, you deserve that. Mm-hmm. That's what you see. Well, Britney said that sure. the U.S. wasn't good. So because of that, she gets what she deserves. It's like, that's what you think? Because yeah. what does James Baldwin say? I love this country so much that I get to then be the person to, um. what's the statement? How's it go? I love it so I can not talk badly, but I can say like things we need to change. I can't think of how the mm-hmm. statement is. And that's what it is, is that people don't want to acknowledge that like two truths can be happening, that you can love yeah. a country, but also demand that there needs to be change right. for better. And we see this conversation because black and brown people are saying, we need to have more change it's the assumption that we hate it. Yep, yeah. so that we can crit- we can criticize her perpetually. Thank you, Bianca. And mm-hmm. people don't understand, like you should be able to criticize something you love because you want it to be better. Absolutely. And so I hate that people are like, well, Brittany, she's getting what she deserves. She deserves to be in jail for 10 years for saying that she wants our country as a, she's a black queer woman to be better for her. Like what kind of truth is that? And so I think it shows how, there's an expectation of assimilation in all aspects in order to be protected overseas. That yeah. you have to never complain or criticize the US, and then you are deserving of protection. And I right. think that's a very unfair truth. And so, but for me, the Britney Griner is just like no matter how much money you make, no matter the position of accolades you are, yeah. you could be in a Russian jail and never know when you're going to get out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. True reality true reality. So no, no, thank you for weighing in on that. Um, so I'm going to go to the next question. Um, I don't see any other hands raised right now, but um, we've been talking so much about um, the work of, of anti-racism um, relevant to kind of the coaching world and athletics and the impact that it may have on them. But I want to also draw some parallels to um, the anti-racism work that you see in athletics broadly and how it could be applicable to all organizations? Because a lot of what you said, I can see very much it applying to the workplace of um, all these different corporations. And so how do you you draw that parallel? And maybe this gives us a chance to learn a little bit deeper about the work that you do with organizations.
1: Yeah. So the way I look at this work is that it should not just be in a professional or athletic. It should be throughout your whole life, right? This should be something that encompasses every aspect of your life. And that's where I think some people have the disconnect. They're like, oh, we're trying to do this in, in the, our office, in our, in our department, isn't doing this. I'm like, but what are you doing with your white kids? What yeah. are you doing with your able-bodied kids? If I go into your kid's library, do I see books with characters of all different races, ethnicity's um, ability? Do I see books with hijab? Like, am I seeing that? Because you can't sit here and criticize your department, but you're not doing anything in your house. And so the work of anti-racism really should go throughout your whole life. It should be that you're able to talk to your parents and say what you're saying is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Because the reality of the situation is that if you're not going to tell the ones you love what they're doing is problematic, you ain't going to tell anyone else.
0: Right. Oh, I mean, and that's
1: the thing is that people have to understand that you should be able, if you're not holding people accountable in your in your circle, who are you going to hold accountable? And so this work really should bleed all throughout you. And so what I do is I like all of my stuff is very foundational. So if you listen to um, the work I do with NIH, National Institute of Health, athletic departments, um, hair, like I've done stuff with like hair salons, curly hair products, it's all the same stuff, different analogies, but it's Mm -hmm. all the same. Because my goal is that we have uniform language. And it's mm-hmm. not fair if I use different definitions depending on who I'm with. So everyone gets the same stuff. It's just different analogies, maybe different slides of data. But I try and keep it uniform so that if you are in um, my session and then your, your partner's in my session for NIH, you all can talk about the same thing because you have the same information.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. I love that. Okay, so we're getting close to the top of the hour, but there's also something else that you're working on that I think is really interesting. And I wanna give you a chance to share that. And it is is an app. And so Jen, why don't you just kind of unpack this for us? What is this app intending to do? What was the inspiration for it?
1: Oh my gosh, yes. So this is is my baby. Um, So I'm creating a group travel app. And the reason why I created this app was because if y'all manage group travel, you know, it's brutal. Like it's the most brutal thing in the world. People not sending their flight information, their hotel. Um, you don't know what's going on. It's usually one person responsible for all the documents. And so it's like, Jen, when does so-and-so fly in? When is this happening? And it's it's too much. And the emphasis of this was because um, I had my PhD graduation. And so literally, I was having to not only think about when am I going to be walking, but also making sure everyone had their hotel room. Everyone was flying in. Oh, I didn't know so-and-so was flying in with me. How do we get cars? And so the emphasis is literally portal, which is coordination plus people. It is meant to be the one place. It's the ecosystem for all your travel needs. You send in your flights, you send in your hotel documents, activities, every aspect, chat function, split pay, Anything you can need is literally within this one ecosystem. And it's meant to make it so it's more community-based, not one person. So you can see when everyone flies in. You can see where everyone's staying. You can even see if they want their hotel room number toggled on and off. Every aspect is right there from professional, personal, wedding parties, bar mitzvahs, graduations, uh, professional movement, everything you can do in this one app.
0: I love it. And one of the other things that I know you shared is that the app will have um, a feature where you can provide resources that
1: may be of need to certain communities. Yeah. So please share that as well. Yeah. One thing that we're doing is we're, you know, it has to be inclusive. And so what we're doing is we're partnering with other like disability groups because they have really good data on accessible hotels, accessible locations. So we're partnering with them so that, Anyone could use this app if you're LGBT, if you have disabilities, any of that stuff. And so the whole purpose is, is that if you are going with your mom who's in a wheelchair, you are going to be able to know what hotel rooms are accessible for her. You're going to be able to know um, if you're a caretaker, kids, like we're making sure we're we're um, partnering with people who do blogs on like the top 10 most accessible cities. Like we're gonna make sure all of that stuff is included so that you don't have to leave the app for any aspect of your travel. And Andrea asked um, if you're a solo travel. Yep. So it does both solo and group. So all of that is in one place because I also do a lot of solo travel. So it's all going to be there. Also, um, there are tiers for, uh, for announcements. So literally, if your partner like mine wants to know when I land and when I depart, it will literally send a text message. Jen's flight just landed. Jen's flight is departing. Jen's flight was delayed. So all of that stuff will be in there.
0: Love that. That sounds really interesting. So you're in beta testing right now. Um, do you want to give us a little bit of insight as to when it will officially be
1: available? Do you yeah, know that? If you, go on the, if you go on the website and it says, let's connect, you can sign up and send us your, and you just do your email address and you can either get more information or do beta testing. And so we're probably going to do beta testing within the next two weeks. So the more diverse groups, the better. And then we're hoping to go live before Thanksgiving because we know Thanksgiving travel, Christmas travel is going to be crazy. And we want to really help people um, with those kinds, of, those type of events. I love
0: it. Love it. Okay. So we have about three minutes left. I want to give this audience a final chance. If you have questions, feel free to raise your hand or unmute yourself. I would love to give please. you, a <laughs> I would love to give you that opportunity before we close out. I'm also checking please, the- please. to see if anything has come up here. Cause I, you know, I have um, I have lots of questions that I certainly could um, could
1: could gravitate to, but I want to be mindful of our time. Uh, Debbie, you want to know um, how you access the app? Go to the website; it's up there, and then once you get um, sign up, and when we need beta testing, we'll shoot you that information. Yep,
0: and so we have placed into the chat the link to um, the app portalapp.com. I like that name, by the way. Um, coordinating people, I love that. Okay, so we've talked about a lot today, Jen. I want to give you an opportunity to close this out with our final two moments. Is there anything that is on the horizon for you or that you're feeling a lot of energy around these days um, that you have not had an opportunity to share that you would like to? I want to give you that chance before we close out.
1: No, I mean, I've had such a phenomenal time on here, Doc. It's been great. You know, I'd say the app is taking up a lot of my time because I really want this to be an amazing product that anyone could use. I think the next thing is um, y'all advocate for yourself. Like advocate the shit out of yourself. Like advocate, advocate. You deserve that raise, you deserve that promotion. Like you deserve all of that. So stop doubting it and just go advocate. Like advocate so hard because you, you believe available? in yourself and other people believe in you. you should advocate for yourself. That's yes, one yes, just yes. advocate for yourself. She was just going yeah, on about that. So <laughs> advocate the shit okay. out of you.
0: Okay, so we have someone that's unmuted, but we're at the end of our conversation nonetheless. And so I just want to thank you, Jen. I want to thank you for saying yes to our invitation. Thank you for coming and sharing with us. This has been so intriguing. And um, I look forward to continuing to follow your success. And specifically, I look forward to uh, learning more about the app. And uh, I even mentioned that our team is going to be traveling for um, a team retreat in November. And I can definitely see how that could be of use for each of us coordinating our schedules. But anyway, we're so glad that you were able to join us today. And um, thank you to all of you who have spent a part of your Friday with us. We're wishing you a beautiful, safe and healthy weekend. And we look forward to seeing you back next week on Intentional Conversations podcast. Thanks everyone. Bye, friend.